Take your Bible, turn to Exodus 34. This is God's Word written for you today. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all earth or in any nation. And the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars. Break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. 
You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Beeb. For in the month of Beeb you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. If you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. And Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses. Now the skin of Moses' face was shining, and that Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we do thank you for your truth. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever, for you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Give life and light to our hearts, we ask, 
for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Do you ever uh, wish you had a do-over? You chuckle because, yeah, you know that, right? That moment where you said the thing and you're like, no, 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 I wish I hadn't said that. I want to do that over. Can we rewind time about nine seconds to whatever that previous sentence was? Or that time where you're talking to somebody, somebody you know and love, you've known them for decades, and you you just can't get their name. It just comes out the wrong way. And you commit to it strongly so that it's like you're fully confident in the wrong name. I wish I could do that over. Or maybe it's that moment where you drop something, you know, in the kitchen and it just explodes. I'm, I'm actually convinced the difference between many sitcoms and normal day life is the fact that we get angry too quickly. You know, they drop the thing and it explodes in the kitchen and everybody laughs and somebody has the great one liner. We drop the thing in the kitchen and it explodes and we're instantaneously wrathful. There's no time for the one-liner because we're already like, ah, you know, and no time to make the joke. If ever there's a point in, in human history where you've got to think, aside from, I guess, Adam and Eve at the very beginning after the curse, this is probably the next point in history where, like, man, I wish I had a do-over. I mean, the Lord's brought his people out of Egypt. That's been this whole story of the Exodus. He's done this marvelous and miraculous deeds all along the way. He's been so merciful to take this nation of slaves. That's what they were. They were a nation of slaves. They had, at this point, no intellectual pedigree. They didn't have even religious pedigree. They were a poor downtrodden, destroyed sort of nation. And the Lord has blessed them, so they've had tons and tons of babies. They've grown to be a large nation. And then brings them out of Egypt. And as he brings them out of Egypt, he loads them with financial wealth. He preserves them through miracles. He gives them guidance. He destroys their enemies. And then he takes them to Sinai, where he shows himself to them. Look, you want to know who your God is? Let me tell you who your God is. And he does this through the form of his law, his covenant. And his law, again, we forget about this, this, the element, the revelatory element of law. Law shows us who God is. It's showing his character. It's showing what's important to him, what's valuable to him, what he likes and doesn't like. It's showing us who he is. And Israel begins, you get the impression, begins being very interested. All right, yay, God brought us here. Woo, we're not enslaved anymore. That's something to celebrate. Now we have all these really nice things. Rich. Yay, that's a thing to celebrate. And now God is meeting with us, and that begins as a thing to celebrate, but they begin to grow bored. Moses is gone for quite a while. He's up on top of the mountain. And in the previous sets of chapters here, while he was on top of the mountain getting more of God's law, that's when they immediately violate the biggies. First two commandments, the ones they've already signed off to and said, we'll do everything that you say, God. They decide to then violate the first two commandments. Instead of worshiping him alone, they tried to worship all kinds of gods. And instead of worshiping him alone in spirit and in truth, they worship him 
and the all kinds of gods with this golden calf. And it doesn't go well, as you might guess. Moses comes down the mountain. He breaks the, the, the two tablets, the stone tablets. Again, being reminded that he didn't break them out of anger in the sense of he lost his temper. He breaks them as a sign act of Israel d- destroying the covenant that God has made with them. God had set a covenant with them and they didn't keep it. So the covenant was destroyed. And then God's wrath falls upon them. You have the Levites go through and stab a bunch of people. You have a plague that comes on top of them. You have God then himself saying, look, I can't be near you because you people are so evil, so foolish, so hard-headed, and so stupid. I will kill you before you have chance to do very much. Until we get to chapter 34. And you have to think again. I just I love thinking about Moses' kind of emotional map through this whole process. You know, at what point did he go, you know, that didn't go so well. That's not gone well. You know, at what point after he came down off the mountain did it, you know, get chance for him to kind of sit and process and go, man, I wish they had done that differently. When Really intriguing. The things that we most often care about wishing we had a do-over on them, usually things we never get one on. Exodus 34, though, is a different sort of chapter in that regard. Here you've had Israel be evil. You've had Israel violate God's law. And then yet here God is giving, in essence, a do-over. And you can see this chapter really, by and large, works. It does well. And you know why? Because the people aren't really mentioned in it at all. <laughs> God's going to redo this thing, but do it in a way that accounts for his glory and the weakness of his people. Has three movements we're going to look at, 1 through 9, 10 through 28, and then 29 through following. It's how it's broken up in ESV, uh, but it is how the passage actually naturally reads. First, you see here at the beginning, the Lord calls to Moses and said, Moses, it's time for the do-over. It's it's time for us to fix this situation. God himself commands him, the covenant is going to be remade. You have already broken the tablets once. It is time for you to make new ones. Go carve the tablets. God says, I'll write on them. You go carve them so that we're ready for the morning. And then in the morning, come up to the top of Mount Sinai, or at least come up part of the way. I'll meet you halfway there. And don't bring anybody with you. This time, no Aaron halfway up, no uh, Joshua halfway up. And in fact, actually, don't even let anybody graze on the opposite sides of the mountain because my glory is going to be here and it will consume them. So Moses obeys. I, I don't know how busy his night was. I've never been a mason. My grandfather was. I, I wasn't. I don't know how carving two tablets uh, works. I don't know how big those tablets are. I imagine it was a little bit of a frenetic pace, but that's just me. I don't understand those sorts of things entirely. And in the morning he goes. Verse 5, you see this kind of glorious picture as Moses goes up the mountain. It describes God coming down the mountain to meet him in glory and power.
And this would be the big question is what's going to happen when they meet? Moses is a representative for people. He is, if you wanted to kind of put it in really crass terms, he is like the incarnation of Israel. He, he's the personification of Israel. He is the representative of Israel. And at this point, Israel's track record is terrible. I mean, it's, it's atrocious. It's genuinely bad. What's God going to do to Moses when he meets him? Is he going to vaporize him? Because, I mean, you would kind of, that's what he's deserved. I mean, what Israel has effectively done in the previous chapter is like marital infidelity on the honeymoon. I mean, that isn't really bad. This is not a good thing. And it's intriguing what God's immediate introduction of himself is to Moses. And it's going to frame out kind of all of God's covenantal relationship with his people. All of God's promises to his people hinge on this next statement. Verse 6, the Lord passes before Moses. And what does he say? Well, interesting, verse 5. Okay, so this chapter, some of the grammar is a little wonky. And the ESV and many of your other English translations intentionally takes a non-committal translation approach. I'm not entirely sure why they do, uh, but they do. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. It's not Moses saying God's name. God descends in front of Moses saying his own name. And what is the name that he's saying? He's saying his covenant name. He's saying that he is the God of promise. And then verse 6, it explains the Lord passes before him and begins to tell Moses who he is. The foundation of all of God's relationship with his people. The Lord, that's that covenant name. The Lord, this is the God who promises. A God that is merciful and gracious. And again, Moses knows this. Moses shouldn't be there. He should be dead. Remember? How did his whole life kind of start? Well, it started in Egypt and it comes to a head where he killed somebody. This is not a man that we would have considered a good He's a convicted felon. He has to flee the, the country that he's grown up in. He's not the great guy. This is the guy that moves in next to you, you know, in your neighborhood, and you tell the kids, please don't play in his yard. If he's out working in the yard, I want you to play on the other side of the neighborhood. Don't play near this guy. He's had an anger problem. I mean, I'm sure he's rehabilitated now, but he did kill somebody. The Lord explaining that he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger. And again, <laughs> Moses would have to understand, look at this. How, how has God shown this over and over with his people Israel? He brought them out of Egypt and they've complained every step of the way. And yet he hasn't destroyed them yet. I would have. You would have. We would be hateful, petty gods. Yet here he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I love that phrase. Uh, you probably, you hear me, hear me pray that fairly regularly. Abounding in steadfast love. It's not just that he has love. It's like, oh yeah, he's got this steadfast love. I love the, the modifiers to kind of every piece of the puzzle there. 
It's love, but it's steadfast love. It's enduring. It's trustworthy. It's true. It continues. It doesn't stop. And it's abounding. Not a word we never use anymore. It's overflowing. It's what the leaves in your yard are going to look like in just a matter of weeks after we finish second summer and actually move into real fall. It's like they never, they're never ending. You can rake them, and then 30 minutes later, they're back. Here at church, it's the crepe myrtle blooms. You sweep the driveways there, sweep the little sidewalks, and in about 90 seconds after you finish, there's more than when you started. God's love, abounding, it's multiplying, it's increasing, it's overflowing, it's true. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. For many of us, this is a, an idea that doesn't entirely resonate with us as much because for some of us, our, our families aren't Christians in the past. Some of us were first-generation Christians or maybe second-generation Christians. I'm second-generation It'd be intriguing, though, for them to think about this idea of the Lord's faithfulness through the generations because of when the promises started that they're relying on. That covenant with Abraham, Abram at the time, in Genesis 12, then in Genesis 15, how God promised so many years ago to one man that I will bless you and I will make you this great nation and I will make your people be like the sand on the shore. I am abundant in my blessing to you. And then to see how that even works its way down to Egypt and now back out of Egypt and you would be able to kind of tangibly look around and have the noise of this bustling city that's traveled with you and to be able to go, yeah, look, God has kept his promise He's kept his steadfast love for these people for generation after generation. While they've been evil for generation after generation in many cases, he has been faithful. And if none of this has caught his ear yet, I mean, I know it has, obviously. You don't stand in God's presence and not listen. The next phrase, though, would have been, I think, probably perhaps the most encouraging of them all so far. The God who is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Because Moses himself has that problem. A murderer coming into God's presence who is representing a people who are stiff-necked. Remember, we've talked about this in the past, but that term stiff-necked where it comes up, it's almost always only, I think if I remember correctly, only applied to the people of Israel in regard to this Exodus season. It's a level of obstinacy that is reserved for kind of only them that have seen all of the miraculous glories of God and still not listened. They're hard-hearted and unyielding. This people who should be holy and are wicked, yet here you have this God in contrast who forgives sins. He doesn't ignore sin. Not 
passive aggressive. He's not intentionally blind. He's not the God who sits there and says, this is fine. Everything is fine. We're all fine. Everything's okay. And ignores it all. And studies the God who deals with it correctly. Verse 8, you have Moses' response, which is, again, (laughs) good common sense here. Quickly bows his head towards the earth and worships and kind of, in essence, falls apart a little bit here, praising the Lord. Until you get that next sentence, and this is a, a kind of a major turning point. It's intriguing in so many ways. And Moses says, if I have found favor in your sight now, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people in part in our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is intriguing for a number of reasons. One is which he, he doesn't use God's covenant name here. Probably didn't catch that. We, the distinction in the English is the all capitals versus the not all capitals. But he uses God's uh, more generic name in this regard. Which is a bit of a surprise because in every other situation, normally uh, Moses appeals to God as this promise-keeping God that he has promised God's people, therefore keep your promises, O Lord. Here, though, I think is actually a greater appeal. It's not an appeal solely to God's promises. It's an appeal to God's greater character. Look, Lord, you have just explained in verses 6 and 7, they weren't verses for him, but in God's paragraph here, you've explained that you're slow to anger. You've told us that you're abounding in steadfast love. You've told us that you show your mercy to thousands of generations. You don't ignore sin, but that you are a merciful God. Will you now please demonstrate that in our midst? Demonstrate all of these things now, not outside the camp where he is currently. Demonstrate them in the people. I suspect for many of us, again, and I... I don't mean to be overly critical toward those who've grown up in the church. I'm critical towards myself when I do that because that's my story. But for many of us who have grown up in the church or grown up in the Bible Belt or other places like that where Christianity is kind of part of the common language of the land, we too often see sin as a really small issue. And when we see sin as a really small issue, we see forgiveness as a really small issue. And when we see forgiveness as a really small issue, we see God as a really small person. And it's because of that that appeals like what Moses is making here are are appeals that so many of us don't really resonate with. I mean, we never say it quite so crassly, but for us so often it's forgive me my sins. And in the back of my head, it's because, well, because I don't really do that. I mean, I'm not that bad of a person and everybody else around me is terrible. And have you seen the drivers in the place where I live? They're atrocious. They need to not be forgiven. I deserve it. Let's move on. 
or we say, Lord, please forgive me my sin because of Jesus and then move on without ever thinking what that means. Why? Why should Jesus be a factor in forgiving my sins? Why should it matter? Why does anything that he do matter to me? This is why if you're in new members class periodically or uh, the interviews are periodically, ask that hard question. Of, well, okay, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So what? What does that matter? What does it accomplish? What does it do? And there's a sense in which Moses' request is this hopeful forward thinking forward-looking request that we have in the past tense. Lord, if, if you are who you say you are, if you are the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, if you are that God, Please come be with your people. Forgive our sins. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. Do this thing in the future. We as New Testament Christians, we have, and the author of Hebrews is so clear in this. That's what Robert put for our second reading in Hebrews is we don't look forward for those things anymore. We look past at those things. How has God shown that He is the God, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love? For, how do we get to see that? Well, we see it in the cross. That the Lord kept His promise to His people to fix their sin. Not to ignore it. Not to just turn a blind eye to it, but to pay it, pay for it, to pay the consequence, to entirely remove it from them legally. And knowing (laughs) the nature of his people to do it in such a way that it does not come down to them. That if it rested on them or relied on them, they'd never ever make it. Never ever see the benefits of that salvation. 10, here he then responds, God responds to Moses and says, Look, we've had this covenant that was broken. Israel broke it. You, their representative, broke it. Now I'm making a new one. I'm making it again. The covenant renewed. Before all your people, I'm going to do amazing things. Now, again, remember, this is God who's already done amazing things. <laughs> I'm going to do before them marvels such as not been seen in the created world or anywhere. Like, that's pretty much their story already. How they came out of Egypt, the sea eating the Egyptian army. I mean, amazing things. And God's saying, no, I'm not done yet. There are more miracles coming, more marvelous things coming, ultimately King Jesus even. My covenant, my promise that I will accomplish your salvation. 
And it's intriguing, too, how the transition here of, uh, I'm going to do this amazing thing, an awesome thing that I will do with you, in verse 10. And then 11, he immediately turns into his commands. Observe what I've commanded you today. I'm going to accomplish the salvation of my people. I'm going to bring them into the land. But you have to be careful, Israel, because your heart is prone to wander. It is so easily distracted. It so badly doesn't want to think of sin or to think of God, and it is unfaithful by nature. And so he reminds them of the law. And the intriguing thing to me is that all of these laws, in some form or fashion, are laws that are designed, one for holiness sake, obviously, but designed to keep Israel faithful. It's intriguing how these laws show us who God is, but in another way, they function as guardrails for Israel to make sure they don't go flying off the side of the road. Don't marry pagans. Because if you marry a pagan, and it specifically references pagan wife, because they understand if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, who's going to win out in the end? Pagan wife. Don't marry unbelievers. Don't skip out on the sacrificial system. Don't forget that all that you have belongs to me, including your children. Don't forget about my schedule of work and weeks so that your entire worldly life is structured around God. All of these commandments placing an obligation on God's people to help them. And I think more often than not, we forget as Christians today, to look at God's law that way. His commands are not given to us as this fuddy-duddy, miserable, grumpy, cantankerous list of rules. They're given to us as a holy duty to help us. To have a good life. To not be miserable. (laughs) To know the Lord and love Him. And I love how the order is here, properly arranged. God's character first, which is merciful and gracious. His salvation, which is merciful and gracious. And the law that follows after. Now live this way. That's no less true for us today. We have those holy obligations designed for our good. In an attempt to be remotely close to our truth. Sunday morning schedule not preach all the way through Sunday school verse 29 is where we see the consequences of this and this is where it's marvelous this is the part that we are probably the most familiar with but the part that we love Moses comes down from Mount Sinai he's happy he's overjoyed he's met with the living and true God God hasn't killed him not only has God not killed him God has renewed the covenant now it's time to have a conversation with uh, the people of Israel and they're not okay now this time they're not okay not because they're out worshiping this pagan God the way that they had done the last time he was up there for an extended spell (laughs) But in a world that doesn't have electricity and they haven't figured out LED lights and they don't have little Kim light sticks, things that glow are not right. Not okay. He comes off the mountain and everybody's like, "Mm, something's not right. The only thing I've seen glow at night, 
It's the giant pillar of fire where God lives and fire itself. And now Moses' face. Not okay with that. Verse 30, I love it. They were afraid to come near him. No joke they were. Here you have this man who radiates with God's glory himself. And they're terrified to come near him. So much so that they actually make him put a veil over his face so that the only time he uncovers his face is when he's giving God's law, proclaiming God's word to them. It would be the equivalent if he wore a veil all the time until he stepped into the pulpit, pulled it back, glowing face, and then here's what God says for you. Veil back and then goes. I really find this one to be so encouraging, though, as to where this falls in light of the previous two sections. You see really so beautifully the plan of salvation laid out here. God's character is a gracious God who takes care of sin, who, though Moses doesn't know yet, is going to take care of sin through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The God who is so gracious that in light of that salvation gives commands to his people for their own good so that they will stay faithful and grow. And then finally, how this God, his very presence is transformative. That's the fun part here. What did Moses do to make his face glow? Well, previous section, verse 27, the Lord said, write these words in accordance with the things I've written. Well, Moses wrote some stuff down. He was there 40 days, 40 nights, didn't eat bread or drink water. And actually there the he at the end, it's the wrong pronoun in the ESV. It's God wrote the tablets of this covenant. It's not Moses. Again, remember I said the pronouns are wacky here. God's the one who actually wrote on the Ten Commandments. Moses was just in the presence of God, and it reshaped him, it changed him, it it actually made him glow with God's glory. And I would say for us in the room, if you're in God's presence, guess what? That happens to you too. And I really appreciate how God has worked in that regard. Can you think about, does Moses know his face is glowing when he gets off the mount? Had to have been the most amazing conversation. Aaron's like, nope, nope, nope. Moses is, you know, like, what's going on? I know I've been gone for, you know, over a month. Is my hair crazy? Is my beard weird? Like, he doesn't know. Moses can't see God's glory on him. But his friends can. And I would just, for you tender-hearted souls in the room, remember that so often is the path of sanctification. You can't see God's glory in you, but we can. You can't see how God's changing you, but we can. You can't see how his glory radiates through your face, but we can. Don't be discouraged. All of it ends with this. So much of our lives, we do want a do-over. And I think so much of that oftentimes comes because we're afraid of consequences or we love perfectionism or it's just sheer embarrassment. But look at God's character there at the beginning. He is merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Maybe we need to think about that character just a bit more. So that our obedience is transformed, so that we're more eager to go into his presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you change us even when we don't feel it. Oh Lord, may we see Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.